to, to be arrested, have just had the Lord's Supper, kind of just like us. It says they sung a song and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And while they're out there, Jesus says, shepherds going to be struck and you're, you're all going to fall away. Not just Judas, who we think of automatically, or Peter, who we know denies him, or Thomas, who's the doubter. You know, we get all those ones. He says, you're all, all of you, you're only going to fall away when the shepherd is struck. And they're not so unlike us, <laughs> right? There's a, there's a challenge to Jesus. Jesus is taken away from them and their expectations that they had on Jesus for their lives and for what he would do. We talked last week about how our we all have these expectations of what Jesus will do in our lives and in this world. And we have to be realistic about our doubts and our disappointments. If it was going to happen in Jesus' day, how much more so in our day? There's a little picture here. You can see this, this faith that we can sometimes feel so sure of, built of bricks, and some sort of wrecking ball comes along and sort of primarily potentially intellectual challenge, but we also saw last week how perhaps the majority of them, of someone who investigated, wrote a book um, looking at people who deconstructed their faith, is this idea of hurt that comes along and it moves into a space. One of those people is a guy called Ian Harbour who I'd like to introduce you to today. And, uh, he grew up in the Bible Belt in America, in a church, came through Sunday school, learned all the stories of the Bible. And uh, like a product of his age, he got to a, a, a point where he started just thinking about the, the, the story of the Bible and the culture around him, even in the Bible Belt, seemed very different uh, to what he was learning about in the Bible and how he pulled those two realities together. And so he started asking some questions, questions that we will all recognize. They're historical questions that Christians have always wrestled with, but um, as in the modern sensibility with our chronological snobbery, we think suddenly they're new. And he started asking them, ones like this, what about the contradictions and scientific inaccuracies that are in certain Bible stories? How, how, how we have shrugged at the passages where God commands Israel to slaughter the enemies. How could a loving God condemn his beloved creation? What about all the other religions? Are they all saying, aren't, they, aren't all religions just basically saying the same things, right? So some of the classical ones that sit with it. But then he had some culturally conditioned questions that he was asking, ones like this. Why did our policies, he says our policies, you'll see the connection between religion and politics in the States, but why did our policies seem to particularly disadvantage poor and marginalized communities? Why was it common in the church to see Christians degrade immigrants made in the image of God who were just trying to seek a better life in my Texas town? And as important as abortion is, surely we're supposed to care about those sufferings after birth as well, right? And because of our modern era, where did he go to explore those questions? Where do we go? We Google. Josh McDowell talked about this. He said when he wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict, uh, uh, a classic text of apologetic for Christians. Um, so this bug, this bug wants to get saved. Um, in the 1970s, he said, if somebody wanted to dispute what was sitting in my text, they had to go and search for it in a library or send away for material. He said, but every challenge to what is in the book is now a click away. 
And so he started looking, and he was particularly drawn into a group that would head themselves up as progressive Christians, which, you know, you could still have Jesus, but you don't need to believe in the authority of the Bible, or that God was the creator, or that there's this thing called sin. Jesus died as our example, not as our substitute, that, that what we're looking for is to be realized in this world, not in some sort of far off. There's a whole lot of things that just pulled at threads with it. And so he began in that space, but then he continued on down, and he got to the place where he just said this, I couldn't help but think I had to be more complicated than the story I was being told, so eventually I left the faith completely. I wanted nothing to do with Jesus or the church. Now, I'll tell the rest of his story at the end. <laughs> but I just want you to sit in this space for a moment. Do you know people like this? Maybe today some of those questions are questions that you sit with. And you, and you, you, you haven't worked it through and come to a place where you're, where you're set with the answers with them, right? This is an important space in the Christian walk, the Christian journey, and the Bible doesn't shy away from it. In fact, the Bible, I think, is telling us that this is actually a necessary step in it, because otherwise your faith lacks something, which we'll look at in a moment. So he wanted to come up, um, he's written some very good stuff, um, which is worth reading, but he wanted to come up with this idea about what he calls deconstruction. And he says this, it's a crisis of faith that leads to the questioning of core doctrines and untangling of cultural ideologies, which settles in a faith that was different than before. So he's going, this is more than just asking kind of a question. This is actually putting some things down on the table and laying them out. But he's saying it's not just jumping right over here until that you're completely going away and you're what they would term an apostate, right? It's a place here where there's a crisis of faith, something that is being challenged in it. Now, let's see the example that we're using in our scriptures, and we're in Mark 14, and it says, oh, I rushed through a few. It says this in verse 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you'll all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, the term fall away, which is a key one that we're talking about here is used in a number of other places in scripture that we looked at last week but there's one really key one that helps us here you might remember this series that we did uh, quite a while ago called by the book on the parable of the sower and we looked at the different soils that jesus said the seed the good word of god that wants to grow and mature in you and produce a fruit one of the four soils that it could land on was the rocks and this is what he said the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who, who hears the word and receives it with joy, but since they have no what? Root. So the, the word hasn't, hasn't grown and matured and gone into a deep space. What happens? They last only a time when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, Remember they said, you, you're going to fall away because of me, because of Christ as representative in the faith. They quickly fall away. So this is the idea that sits with it, and, and a key idea that we want to run through this. These things need to be brought out into the open and talked about it and worked through because that's how the roots of the seed grow into your heart so that when trouble, persecution comes along, 
You have a root that can withstand it. This is the point. And those roots, like, like when it's a drought, the roots go down deeper so that next time when there's a drought, they can, they can withstand it more. If, if you just put a plant in a perfect kind of environment with all the water and stuff, that it, it produces useless roots, and then when something comes along that scorches it, it's gone, right? We need deep roots. How do I go about that? Well, the Bible tells us that it's through a process where trouble comes along, things that push us. Now, today we're going to look at Peter. So what we're doing now, and we have Jonathan next week, but um, following that, we're going to look at various disciples and think about the different, in many ways, the different ways that they fell away. Because there's different elements of the the disciples and differences in their story. Today we're going to look at Peter, which I think is one that will resonate with most, if not all of us. Verse 29, straight after this. Um, what he's just said about falling away. Peter said to him, even though all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then it says, they all said the same. Let's pick up the story in verse 66. By the way, uh, this story, the prediction and then the actual denial, is told in all four Gospels. And when you read them, you'll look at it and go, oh, there's some discrepancies between them. And this is one of the key passages that people who are critical of the Bible and say the Bible is not God's word, is saying, look, there's just differences, there's differences between them and you can't um, merge them in together. So if you've never looked at that, this is a really good passage to go away and have a look at how you resolve it. Because it's actually, when you lay it up, it's easily resolvable when you understand how eyewitness accounts work, right? It's it's very uh, easy to piece together. But if someone comes along with you and says there's contradictions in the Bible, this is is likely one of the places that they will go. So we're in verse 66, and it says this, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. John gives us a little more context to the story in his one. You see, when, Jesus, when Peter fled after Jesus was arrested, he actually followed him from a distance. And they came to the, to the place where Jesus was being uh, held for his trial. And uh, it was a, a place where you were only allowed in if you, you know, knew the high priest or had the right associations. And so Peter couldn't come in. But one of the other disciples, probably John, knew the high priest. And he was able to, and he said, now Peter can come in. And so they go into this courtyard area that sits outside where, where people hang around. It's nighttime. There's a fire going. 
There's a beautiful glow of the fire. It's a, probably a little bit cool, and so they're there. It's a, it's a nice environment. We love sitting around a fire, don't we, and, and talking. It, it seems to create dialogue and things that are going on. It's a, it's a place of, of community and, and enjoyment that's happening in there. And Peter's there. He's still following Jesus in some sense, even in his confusion of what is going on and disappointment that sits in it. And then three times he's challenged. There's discrepancies of some of who did it, but it, it seems like there's a, there's a girl that answered the door, the doorkeeper, the servant girl answers, and she says something. But then they come through, and she shares it with another, a, a slightly wider group. And so one of them says it was the girl again, and another one says it was. So he was getting accusations just from a number of different spots. So he denies it again. And then it says there's a wider group around who also hear it, and so they make the accusation. And so it sits here that they're saying, you're one of them. You're one of them. This is a scenario that plays out thousands of times every day in the places that we inhabit, doesn't it? One of them in John 18 says, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? I remember um, once I was down in Wellington. Uh, I was living in Palmerston North at the time. I was involved in a veterinary research business. And one of our key clients, I was walking with the head of that company, and he was an important person for us. We needed his business for us to be able to function and, and survive. And we were wandering along and uh, he just, I, don't, I can't even remember what triggered the conversation, but he just started saying these really disparaging things about people who would le- believe in a God, believe in a creator, da-da-da-da. And he's going on about this. And I'm walking with him and I'm going, what do I do here? I need his business. I need him to like me, <laughs> right? You ever felt that tension? What do I do? Thankfully, in that occasion, I've plucked up the courage to say, well, actually, <laughs> I'm one of them. And we were able to have a conversation. I think he thought a bit less of me at that moment, but we were able to continue it on. But this plays out. You, you, you guys know this story. You know this. And I think it's increasing. There's a, a writer uh, recently who, who wrote a, an article that I found helpful I, I wouldn't put it as cut and dry as him, but, but he was looking at the American context, but I think it's similar here. He would say there's three kind of phases about the way that the, the wider world view Christianity, and he would say that there was a time in the past where it had a positive thing where you were a Christian within your world, right? To be known as a good church-going person remained part of being an upstanding citizen. Publicly being Christ, a Christian was a status enhancer. And he puts particular dates on this. He thinks it changes around the 80s or 90s with it. And then he said there was a, a neutral one, right? You could say that you were a Christian and um, uh, Christian, Christianity would no longer have the privileged status it has, but it, but it wasn't disfavored either. Being publicly known a Christian neither has a positive nor an impact on one's social status. Christianity was a valid option within a pluralistic public square. But he says this, his view is that it has now got negative connotations. 
And we can debate this around, but I, I think he's probably on the right track. Not with everybody, but in a wider sense, I think metaphorically our shepherd is being struck again in the wider place that we're in. And so now it, is now it has a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral, new public moral order. I'll give you one quick example. The table that I'm going to show you next is, um, is from a, a, a very popular book. It was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It was written by someone who the New York Times said is the, is the leading advocate of, of what is this called the social justice training in the United States. They're training large multinational companies in, this, um, in a particular style of what they understand social justice to be, uh, including companies like Coca-Cola, right? Uh, very, very large and well-represented. And they have a table in their book, and I just want to show you one part of it. You could spend a long time on this table, but I just want to show you one thing. <clears throat> and it lists on one side that there is a, an oppressed group, a target group of oppression, and on the other side is the ones who are doing the oppression. And you'll see there that on the, under religious oppression, the oppressed groups are Muslims, Buddhists, Jews, Hindus, and other non-Christian groups. Can you see who the oppressors are? Just Christians. It doesn't define it. It just uses it in a broad thing. Christians are oppressors. Right? It's just one example that there's been a shift that has taken place. Now, we feel it down on the level that we operate in. I, I'm not sure in my lifetime whether it's ever been positive <laughs> saying you're a Christian, but I think there's probably neutral, but it's heading more and more negative. And this, this thing of just being in spaces that you're in, whether it's your school or your workplace, maybe the families that you're in, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? Is an accusation. And what do I do? See, the situation for Peter perhaps is not so much different from where we are sitting today. Peter fails at that moment. I failed many times in that moment too. I suspect many of you have too. And his response is interesting because it says, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. I want you to see there, he broke down and he wept. That is appropriate response that sits there in that space. We need to be ones who are standing in that space, unafraid, but we so often have much fear. When you see the, the promise of Jesus that we looked at last week, he says, Jesus is carrying on with his, I'm going, after I'm raised up, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be raised up. But then we talked about last week this invitation, I will go before you. So he's, he's saying, you will fall. He doesn't give a big description of what will happen, but he just says, I'm going to carry on with what I, and I want to invite you in a very real space to come back. 
We see a beautiful story at the end of John, the book of, the book of John, and in some ways it mirrors the, the great commission that we have. The, you know, the church is to go out and to baptize all nations. But I think at an individual level, here is Jesus saying to John something very similar. Let's read it. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Probably he's referring to the disciples around them, right? Because he compared himself with them. He was always better than them. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. See, Jesus is not going through some big process where he interrogates him and, and brings him down. He says, I'm continuing on with my mission. You're here. Let's go. Let's keep moving. And I think part of what he's saying is this, is, is, is your salvation, and I mean that in the wider sense of the thing, is not based on the things you do. In fact, the things that you do or don't do are what made salvation necessary. <laughs> my salvation is based on the fact of what Jesus Christ has done. And Jesus Christ is inviting me to continue on to that. And I can, in those moments where I weep bitterly and I realize that I fail God, I can become miserable in myself and I miss what God is doing. And self-misery is just the worst place to be. Jesus is saying, come with me. We've still got work to do. The last thing I want you to notice there is there was certainly physical fear that, that Peter had when he was there as to why he denied Jesus Christ. But you see what he says there, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young and you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Then he said, he, he, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to me, him, follow me. So Peter, who denied Jesus because he was afraid, he wanted both acceptance, but he was also physically afraid, no longer has that fear and will one day not be afraid to die for his faith. Church history tells us that Peter died for his faith. What an incredible story about what shifted in the person of Peter because of his falling away, not despite of it. Right? Let's think about this for a minute. Anyone recognize this bloke? How many stayed up last night? Who is our dedicated royalist? Good, good work. Oh, few of you? Staying awake nicely, good work. One of the interesting things in, um, in his coronation, historically, kings, everybody would do a pledge of allegiance, right? Because we would come under them. We're very different now, but one person did do a pledge of allegiance. Well, two, actually. Um, do you know who they were? His son, William. Sounds like the Archbishop of Canterbury also did it. And uh, so this is what he said, I, William, Prince of Wales, pledge my loyalty to you and faith and truth. I will bear unto you as your liege, man of life and limb, so help me God. One of the things I just want you to, to think about, like we primarily understand coming to Jesus Christ is that we're saved, I have my sins forgiven, I've been washed clean, right? There's another element of, of it that we need to understand that I, I, I pledge my faithfulness and my loyalty my fidelity would be an old word that would be used at, 
to my King Jesus. I think in our modern context, we don't quite understand kingship and royalty in the way that they would have understood it in the past. And, and why this is important is because when Peter was being challenged and when you or I are being challenged, we are being asked this question, who are you loyal to? Where does your loyalty lie? It's easy to say it in church. It's hard to say it in an uncomfortable environment around a warm fire when you're wanting to belong and be accepted by a group that doesn't want to know Jesus. But the important is question still sits so very strongly with us. I want to come back to Ian. Ian became a revangelical. <laughs> if you want to add that to your lexicon. I first came across him because he wrote uh, an article called Progressive Christianity, even shallower than the evangelical faith I left. And what he said is what seemed to promise so much, he said, when I went to put my faith back together, it had no foundation or to use the metaphor that Jesus said, it had no roots to it either. I, I thought it would answer the, the questions that I had and the things that I saw around me and the life that I had. And he just says it was barren and shallow, right? And we think this false promise of it will satisfy all those things rather than digging deeply into our word and understanding where classical Christianity has come with it. And so he doesn't dismiss the, the, the idea of, of deconstruction or, or, or putting things or, or taking crises of faith to make sure that we, we, we put down deep roots. He says this, the goal of deconstruction should be greater faithfulness to Jesus, not self-discovery or signaling one's virtue. I like that. The goal should be greater faithfulness to Jesus. And as I mentioned, I'll put up a link to his articles because I found them particularly helpful in um, understanding some of this process. But I'm just going to read this as our close and as a little bit of a benediction as um, Nick comes up and we play our last song. Because this is Peter writing a number of years later in one of the letters that we have in our canon. And this is what he, he writes. And I'm just going to read it without any comment but I want you to take it away with you and maybe this is a text you put somewhere this week to think about this is what he says his that's Jesus's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.